I'd like to invite you to stand, if you would, please, and grab your Bibles. Uh, and let's turn in it to Psalms 3, chapter 3. So if you don't have your Bible with you, there's a pew Bible in front of you, and it's found on page 309 in your pew Bibles. Reading from Psalm chapter 3. <clears throat> this is a Psalm of David when he was fleeing from Absalom, his son. Lord, how have they increased who trouble me? Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God, Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people, Selah. Father God, we praise you for who you are, for your goodness, your faithfulness, your kindness, your generosity. And God, we thank you for your word, for its instruction to us, for its guide, for its relevance uh, for us today. And we, Father, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to hear from you. And God, help us to apply your truth to our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As we continue in our worship series, Summer in the Psalms, I'm sure most of you came to church safe and sound in the comfort of your automobile, whether that was a car or a truck, even perhaps a motorcycle. I bet nobody here arrived today the way that Ian Morgan Cron arrived to church one day when he was just a child. In his book, Jesus, My Father, the CIA, and Me, he tells the story when he was a child about a friend who had given his family an old rusty car that could comfortably hold two people. One day they piled seven people into the car on the way to church. And as they were driving up a steep hill, hoping they could make it all the way up to the top, tragedy suddenly struck. The seven of us were a nanosecond away from cheering when there was a loud thump followed by my father yelling. My father's seat had fallen through the rusted bottom of the car. It was dragging along the pavement, shooting sparks up into the wells of the back seat, threatening to light our socks on fire. My father's rear end was inches from the ground. The collapse of the seat had shot his legs upward so that his kneecaps now nearly touched his face, and he was holding down his black bowler lest it be damaged. He looked like a fat kid shoved butt first into a waste paper basket. Pull over, Ann, pull over, he demanded. Jack, hold on, she said to my father. At the bottom of the hill, my mother careened right. An eighth of a mile later, we lurched up in front of the church more or less in one piece. 
the seven of us, sweaty and shaken, slowly began peeling ourselves out of the smoking vehicle. It took my brother several attempts to pull my father out of the car as bemused parishioners gawked and snickered at us. Now, I'm pretty sure nobody arrived to church quite like that. But sometimes it sure feel like, feels like it, doesn't it? Sometimes it feels like we're barely making it in life. So what do you do when it's not just your car that's barely making it, but your life is barely making it? Well, that's why we're taking time to look at the Psalms this summer. In this particular Psalm, Psalm chapter 3 teaches us what to do when you're barely making it in life. It teaches us how to respond when life is seemingly falling apart. There are several kinds of psalms in the collection of the book of Psalms. And one of those types of psalms is what is called a lament. The psalms of laments are written by people in great pain. They express struggles and pains and disappointments and discouragements and and they express just how hard life can be. One Old Testament scholar says, Laments are the psalms where David or other psalmists are pouring out their hearts to God, being honest about the fact that at times life just stinks. In other words, laments are the psalms that sing the blues to God, especially when your life is falling apart. And that's what David is singing here in Psalm 3. But the question becomes, why? Why is David singing the blues? Well, if you look at the top of the psalm, Psalm 3 in your Bibles, in fact, Bill noted it for us, you'll find that this is one of 14 psalms that are directly linked to a specific event in David's life. And this event tells us why David is singing the blues in Psalm 3. And so the context of Psalm 3 is this. David wrote this psalm when he fled for his life from his very own son, Absalom. Now let me just briefly give you a little background about the story of this. Uh, The background to this psalm is Absalom's rebellion, which is recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 15 through chapter 18. When David's son tried to seize his throne by snuffing out his life. It all started when David's other son, Ammon, raped his half-sister, Tamar. And so in defense of his sister's honor, Absalom killed Ammon and then started an insurrection against his father. And because of Absalom's beauty, because of his charisma and his shrewdness, his charm, many people forsook David. They left David and they joined Absalom's revolt, forcing David to to flee Jerusalem, to flee for his life. But all of this was basically part of God's judgment on David's life as a result of his own adultery with Bathsheba and then the subsequent murder of her husband Uriah the Hittite. But there's another angle behind this as well. In his lust for the throne... Absalom was trying to unseat the king God had installed on his holy hill. 
Absalom, if you will, is joining now the ranks of the international scoundrels that we learned about in Psalm chapter 2 in his plot to overthrow God's chosen king for his specific people at that time in history. Now, it's hard to picture, hard to imagine even, a worse moment in someone's life than David's life right now. Not only did he lose everything, but his own son was betraying him. 2 Samuel 15, 12 says it, sums it up. And it says, and the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And so no wonder David was singing the blues. Let me tell you, if we were in his shoes, we'd be singing the blues too. He was on the run from his own people who were being led by his own son. His life was falling apart, literally. So what do you do when life falls apart? Or another way, we almost titled it this, this, the, the message this way because it's Father's Day. Dads, what do you do when your son is trying to kill you? Well, David wrote a psalm. That's what he did. And specifically, Psalm chapter 3 here, and even Psalm 4, because they, they were written together. David, in writing this psalm, he shares his secret when life falls apart. And by the way, even if you're here this morning and your life isn't falling apart, and you're thinking to yourself, I don't need this psalm today, just hold your seat, because sooner or later you will. God has a mystery, a mystical way of working in that way in our lives sometimes. And so sooner or later, all of us are going to need the words that David brings to us in this psalm. And he shares his secret. He shows us when life falls apart that there is always hope when God is on our side. That's the basic message here. That's the big idea of David's Psalm 3. There is always hope when God is on our side. In many ways, David's hope embraces what the Apostle Paul would later write in the New Testament in Romans 8, verse 31, when Paul says, what then shall we say to these things, such as when life is falling apart? If God is for us, who can be against us? And because of David's hope in God, you may have noticed when Bill read the psalm for us here that this psalm, there's a mood change right after verse 2. And it's not that David is denying the situation he finds himself in, but rather, after verse 2, all of a sudden, David begins to focus on the source of his hope, which is his God. So let's go through this a little bit. Let's learn the secret that David shares when life is falling apart. Step number one is admit your troubles to the Lord. Admit your troubles to the Lord. To paraphrase Eugene Peterson in his book, Answering God, trouble triggers prayer. A lot of truth to that. And David begins his prayer by bringing his troubles to the Lord. Look how he begins in verses 1 through 2. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. David, let me tell you, has called upon the Lord thousands of times in his life, but none with more desperation than this prayer. The heart of David's troubles are found in the repeated word, many. 
many indicating that his troubles were real and his enemies were increasing, accumulating. David tells us even later in verse 6 that 10,000 of people had set themselves apart against David. But David's enemies were not only many. What we learn in this first part of his prayer is that they were mean and they were mouthy. And David told the Lord all about this in his prayer in these first two verses. Look at it. David first told the Lord what his enemies were doing against him. And what were David's enemies doing? Well, many of them were rising up against David. Now, this is a military term that David is using here. It's military language. Just like in Psalm 2, David's enemies were, were raging in rebellion. They were plotting against him, scheming against him. But just who were David's enemies? Well, we know one of them was Absalom. But listen, they were not the surrounding nations. Uh, surrounding the nation of Israel. But they were fellow Israelites. And so the enemy here was not without, the enemy was within. His son was his enemy. So was his trusted counselor and friend who betrayed him. So was a large portion of his generals and soldiers who deserted him to follow his son Absalom. And so people David knew, people David loved and trusted were now determined to end his reign and take his life. And so everywhere David looked, friends became foes. To complicate matters, David knew he was at least partly responsible for all this. Chimney was right. You're like, who? Yeah, a guy. If you go back to the second Samuel, he's the guy who stood on a hill cursing David. And as he was standing on that hill cursing David, he was pelting David with rocks as David was fleeing the city of Jerusalem. In 2 Samuel 16, verses 7 through 8, Shimon's yelling at David. He's cursing him. He's saying, get out, get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a man of blood. And David knew. He's partly right. Shimini is right. He did have blood on his hands. That is David. David did disobey God. David did dishonor his calling as king by sleeping with Bathsheba and ordering her husband's death. And so David knew. He's partly to blame with all this, what his enemies were doing. It was part of the judgment of God on his life. David's heart was broken by what his enemies were doing to him, but his broken heart was stepped on by the news of what his enemies were saying about him. Look what the... Which brings us to our second thing. David told the Lord what his enemies were saying. And what were David's enemies saying? Well, many of them were saying, there's no help for him and his God. Now, by that, they don't mean that God cannot help David. They're not implying that God is powerless to help him, but that God will not help David. Now, that's a far cry from what they used to say about David. Perhaps you remember what they used to say about David. The people of Israel used to sing songs about David's greatness. Remember after he killed Goliath, they wrote a song and sang about his greatness, and now they're singing his demise. Remember, David 
is God's anointed king. And they're saying basically that God has turned his back on him. And so you can see why his enemies were saying this, because it sure looked like it at the time. God has anointed David as king, but now it looked as if his life was literally falling apart. David's enemies are increasing. They're moving in for the kill because they believe God has abandoned him. But don't miss what David does here. From the outside looking in, it does look like God has abandoned him. But David turns to the God who has supposedly abandoned him. And he doesn't just gloss over his troubles. David pours out his heart to God in prayer. I love how one author puts it, prayer is the way we, we slog our way through troubles in life. And so when life falls apart, the first step is to admit your troubles to the Lord. We now come to step number two, and that is to affirm your confidence in the Lord. Affirm your confidence in the Lord. In the opening verses of this psalm, David tells the Lord about his troubles with his enemies. But in verses 3 through 6, David shifts his focus on the Lord himself. This is the turning point in this psalm. It's the turning point in his prayer. After focusing on his many enemies... David seems to do a grammatical 180, and he fills his prayer. He fills his vision of his God. James Montgomery Boyce writes, When a believer gazes too long at his enemies, the force arrayed against him seems to grow in size until it appears to be overwhelming. But when he turns his thoughts to God, God is seen in his true great stature, and the enemies shrink to manageable proportions. And this is exactly what David does. He does not respond to the schemes and the threats of his enemies by getting emotional. What you find David doing here, he's getting theological. He reminds himself in prayer of who his God is and what his God has done. That's theological. Many people have concluded that his Lord had abandoned him had forsaken him, but notice how David responds in verse 3. Look at it again. He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. Now these are not the words of one who is forsaken by God. Let me tell you, this is the testimony of one who has an ongoing relationship with God. So why affirm your confidence in the Lord? Well, first of all, because of who the Lord is. And who is the Lord? David identifies three attributes or character qualities, characteristics about our God. First of all, the Lord is our protecting God. He's our protecting God. When David says, but you, are, O Lord, are a shield for me or a shield around me. Now a shield, most of you are familiar with a shield. You can even visualize it in your mind. If you've seen the movie Braveheart or any of those types of movies, immediately you know what a shield is. And in this particular case, we're not talking about the big, huge shields, but the smaller, round shields. It's a defensive weapon used to deflect the attacks of the enemy, such as a sword or an arrow. And soldiers were, would hold a small, round shield in one hand, while they would fight with the other hand. The problem, though, with a small round shield is what? 
It's very limited in its protection. But David says that the Lord is a shield, literally, all around him, not just in front of him. In other words, David says that God is his complete protection covering all sides of his life. And so when you're under attack, remember that God is our shield. He's our protecting God. And second, he says the Lord is our sufficient God. David says the Lord is my glory. But what does that mean? What does it mean that God is David's glory? Well, when used in reference to human beings, glory often speaks of one's dignity, of one's honor. And so David is kind of saying that his self-identity, his self-worth is rooted in his God. As a king, David had a glory that no one else had. He was king. He had the glory of his throne. He had the glory of his crown. He had the glory of ruling over a kingdom. But now what? He's on the run for his life, and so he's lost the glory of his throne and crown and kingdom, and yet he says, I have all the glory I need in this situation because my glory is in my God. David is basically saying, you know what? Being the king is, does not make me who I am. I am a somebody, not because I'm a king, but because I belong to the one who is the true king, and he is my glory. He is sufficient for me in all situations in life. And then number three, the Lord is our restoring God. He's not just our protecting God. He's not just a sufficient God, but he is our restoring God. David calls God the one who lifts up my head, which is a Hebrew expression for restoring someone who is cast down in defeat, in discouragement, in despair. Now, I think most of us here, we all know what it means to hang our head. We notice that in people. And our first response oftentimes is, what's, what's wrong? Kirk, what's wrong? Your countenance is droopy. Your head is even physically lowered. What's wrong? You're cast down. 2 Samuel 15, 30 tells us that David fled from Jerusalem. And as he was fleeing, he fled to the Mount of Olives, weeping, barefoot, and with his head covered due to his grief and shame of losing his throne in an insurrection. David, in other words, was in dire need of God's restoring touch in his life. And that's what God will do for those who put their trust in God. God has a way of restoring his people, even in the middle of what we consider impossible situations. So what then gave David such confidence that the Lord was his protecting God, his sufficient God, and his restoring God? Well, David based his confidence on what the Lord had already done for him. Look at what David continues to pray in verses 4 through 6. He says, I cried to the Lord with my voice, and this is beautiful, and he heard me from his holy hill. And then I love what it says next, I lay down and slept. 
I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. So why then affirm your confidence in the Lord, not just because of who the Lord is, but now because of what the Lord has done for you and what the Lord can and will do for you. Look at this. The Lord hears our cries. Notice how David prayed. He says, I cried to the Lord with my voice. Man, this expresses the fervency of David's prayer. Folks, listen to me. There is a time for quiet, contemplative, reflective prayer. And then there's a time that we cry out to God in desperation for his help, is there not? David cried out to the Lord, and the Lord heard his prayer. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. We need not fear a frowning world while we rejoice in a prayer-hearing God. We pray and God hears. And notice from where the Lord heard David's prayer. It says, from his holy hill. Now that phrase should capture our, our, our trigger, our memory. That phrase we picked up last week in Psalm chapter 2. And we learned last week that God's holy hill refers to Mount Zion in the city of Jerusalem, the place of the tabernacle where the very presence of God dwelt with God's people. But David is fleeing God's holy hill from the city of Jerusalem. And so he's literally, physically separated from God's dwelling place now. And yet, God says, I still hear you. I still hear your your the cries of your heart, David. And I hear it from my holy hill. It doesn't matter, in other words, where we are in life. When we pray as his children, God hears our prayers. He hears our cries. Number two, the Lord sustains our lives. He sustains our lives. Most scholars believe Psalms 3 and 4 were written at the same time by David. In fact, Psalm 4 is often called an evening psalm because of what David prays in verse 8 of Psalm 4. He says, I will both lie down in peace and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. That's a good psalm to go to sleep to. You can go to sleep in peace when you know it's the Lord who ultimately keeps you safe at night. Not your guard dog, not your alarm system. It's the Lord who's keeping us safe. Psalm 3 is oftentimes called a morning psalm because of what David prays right here in verse 5. I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustained me. You might be thinking, what on earth is David doing going off to sleep when there's a coup going down? Is he nuts? I mean, with the increasing trouble David faced, do you think he'd be up all night pacing the cave floor in worry? But no, he was able to sleep in peace with no help of Tylenol PM. Now, just think about that with me. That's amazing. That is amazing because humanly speaking, sleep is difficult enough, if not impossible, when someone is intent on killing you. And yet David slept in peace. How is that possible? I mean, how do you explain that? Well, David explains how when he says, 
for the Lord sustained me. I love what is later written in the Psalms. Psalms 121 verse 4 says about our God, He who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Listen, that's why we can sleep at night, because God never sleeps. He's up all night sustaining our lives in our sleep. Number three, the Lord calms our fears. He not only sustains us, he not only hears us, but he calms our fears. Listen, David is not held in the grip of fear here. For his peace is not a one-night flash, but a long-term perspective. His peace controls the way he looks at the future with all its uncertainty. And so David affirms in verse 6, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Now, folks, listen to me. That is not hyperbole. David's not exaggerating here. Thousands of people had actually set themselves against David, but he was not afraid. This doesn't mean that David did not have anything to be afraid about. Oh, listen, he has plenty of reasons to be afraid. But because he knew who his God was, and because he knew what his God had already done for him, David determined that he was not going to allow fear to dictate how he responded in this situation. And so basically what we learn here, David himself is reminding us of a great truth, a great principle for all of us. And he's reminding us that we don't find peace in our circumstances, but rather in our God. David's circumstances have not changed. Nothing has changed about his circumstances. His life was still in danger. Absalom was still seeking to kill him. And he was still surrounded by thousands of enemies. And so in many ways, David was still just barely making it in life. He was still fall, his life was still falling apart, and yet there's no alarm, there's no anxiety on his part, just the peace of God in his heart. Listen to what David writes. Later on, in Psalm 27, verses 1 through 3, he says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Now, in a make-believe world, David could have said, Amen, right after verse 6. But David doesn't live in a make-believe world, and I doubt any of us do here as well. David lived in a real world just as we live in a real world, where his troubles were real and his enemies were increasing. And so David cries out to the Lord again in verses 7 and 8. Look what he says. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. 
Your blessing is upon your people. You see, David knows his troubles are bigger than him. And that is often where we find ourselves in life. Our troubles, our trials, our problems, our situations, circumstances, people around us, you name it. We can't control it. We can't manage it. They're bigger than us. But David also knew they're not bigger than his God. And so he asked God, he begs God for deliverance, fully expecting it to come. In fact, he is so confident that it will come that he even prays in the past tense, even though it had not yet come. It's amazing. Which brings us to our third and final step when life falls apart. Anticipate your deliverance from the Lord. Deliverance. Now that's the same word that is used back in verse 2. When the people were saying of David, there is no help. Literally the word is deliverance. There is no deliverance for him in God. But now in verse 7, David is asking for it anyway. When he prays, save me, deliver me, oh my God. And the reason is obvious. In verse 1, many were what? Rising up against David. But now in verse 6, what is he asking God to do? To rise up against his enemies, which by the way, is a battle cry. In other words, David is literally in prayer asking God to go to war on his behalf against his enemies. In verse 8, makes it clear why David is asking God to go to war for him, to rise up and deliver him from his enemies. Because he says, and he knows in his heart, salvation belongs to the Lord. David knows that deliverance ultimately comes from the Lord and nowhere else. David understands ultimately his deliverance does not depend on the few people, the few soldiers that followed him. It doesn't depend on his strategy and his plans and his manipulation, his management of the problem in people. It ultimately depends on God. But what about David's other request here? The request where David prays as if it's already a done deal. The request that kind of captures our interest when he says to God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. What about that? I mean, those are harsh words, are they not? I mean, the imagery is violent. In fact, it sounds like a clip from the latest X-Men movie. Now, some people may be getting a little bent out of shape over this verse. They're getting a little bent out of shape because the enemy's going to need a doctor and a dentist afterwards. These people are nervous because this prayer asks God to get violent with the enemy. But we must understand something here. If David is going to be delivered in this situation then God will have to bring down those people who are opposing his chosen king. In other words, there can be no deliverance for David unless his enemies are dealt with. This part of this prayer of David is often called 
in the Psalms imprecatory prayers. You're like, what's that? You have to come next Sunday. Pastor Chris is going to continue in the series on this very idea of these types of prayers and why they're legitimate when we commit them into God's hands. Come back and learn about it. Now, some of you also may be wondering, well, isn't David being a little vengeful here? After all, didn't Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, greatest sermon ever preached, say we ought to do what? Turn the other cheek, right? So isn't David be a little vengeful in this prayer here? And my answer to you, based on the word of God, is absolutely not. David's not vengeful at all here. He doesn't, and this is the key, he doesn't take matters into his own hands in revenge. Clearly in this prayer, David is committing vengeance to his God and asking God for deliverance from his enemies. Here's the issue, and this is in your notes. Here's the issue when enemies rise up against us. The issue is always this. Will we seek revenge or will we leave vengeance in God's hands? Will we seek revenge or will we leave it in God's hands? Do you know what happens when there's no justice and nobody puts a stop to evil? People start taking matters into their own hands. We have a term for it. It's called vigilante justice. You're familiar with it. And the only way this is prevented in a culture, in a society of people, is if we know there's justice. And that evil will be stopped. And those committing the evil will ultimately be held accountable for it. And David says he knows he doesn't have to take matters into his own hands. Why? Because he knows that God is just and that God will take care of the injustice being committed against him by his enemies. Therefore, David is now free to leave vengeance in God's hands instead of seeking vengeance on himself. As Paul writes later on in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so the reason here now that we don't have to get revenge and we don't have to seek vengeance is because God is just and God will repay injustice. Now, not always on our timetable and not always in this lifetime. But folks, remember, ultimately, God will judge all injustices. He will hold all people accountable for their crimes at the judgment in the next life. Here's the deal. Vengeance is always an issue of trust. Think about this with me. It's always an issue of trust. And here's what I mean by that. Do I trust God alone, and do I trust him enough to make things right? Do I trust him enough to be the judge and to make all the wrongs committed against me right? And do I trust him to deliver me out of this situation? Ultimately, do I really believe what David prayed, salvation belongs to the 
Lord. Folks, that's an issue of trust. We either trust God enough that we leave it in his hands and salvation belongs to him, or I don't trust him enough and I get it my own and I seek it out my own. Listen, let me encourage you. When your life is falling apart, whether due to some injustice committed against you or perhaps for some other reason, let me encourage you to do what David does here, to pray for your deliverance and then to praise God for his deliverance. Now, notice how this prayer ends. Notice how David ends his prayer in verse 8. He says, your blessing... He's saying, God, your blessing is upon your people. This final benediction makes it clear that David is not praying selfishly here. As God's anointed king, he's also thinking about God's people. It's almost as if David is saying in this final benediction, Lord, it's just not my life here that's falling apart, but a whole lot of your people are barely making it too. Oh, Lord, please, if it be your will, let your blessing and let your saving grace and help also flow to them in their troubles. That's the heart of this final benediction. And it's how David concludes the whole prayer. It's beautiful. And so he's not praying, in other words, just for himself. He's praying this for all of God's people. And so this psalm teaches us that there is always hope in life. When God is on your side. Listen, when life is falling apart, when it seems like you are barely making it, remember what Paul wrote in Romans 8. And I love these verses and, and kind of putting them together here. Verse 31, 35, and 37. Listen to what Paul writes. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or pearl, or sword. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let's bow our heads. And as we prepare for our response time, I want to invite you to come to the Lord as David did, to come to him in prayer and lay before him what you're going through. Listen, God can handle your honesty just as he handled the honesty of David. And so tell him your troubles. And as you do, remind yourself of who God is and what he's done for you in the past. And most of all, remind yourself of who you are in Christ. Listen, you have a Savior who died to save you, to make you right with God. And then to see that God is a God who judges you don't have to judge your enemies because God will do a better job of judging evil than we ever could. And so look to the cross of Christ and see that this is where perfect justice and mercy meet. Where God repays evil. Where forgiveness is extended to all those who trust in him. Lord, we come to you and we thank you for this psalm of David. We thank you for how real and raw it is before us. And Lord, the truth of what it reminds us, that there's always hope when you are on our side. And when we turn to you and come to you, 
And so, Lord, I know there are some here this morning who may be in situations where it feels like, it seems like they're barely making it, life is falling apart. Lord, extend your grace and strength to them. Help them to see you for who you are and what you can do for them. So help us to respond appropriately, even now, as Kirk sings. Mm -hmm.